Today, we are excited to introduce you to Penny Williams. Penny is a parenting coach who trains and mentors parents raising kids with ADHD and or less obvious autism. She's the host of the Parenting ADHD podcast, The Happy Mama Retreat, and has online courses for parents to stop battling with their children as well. All can be found at parentingadhdandautism.com. We've also linked that website in our show notes for this episode. There are so many gems in this episode. Listen in to hear us talk about how labeling informs direction and prevents labeling by misinformation and how labeling helps people understand your child, how asking why breaks the cycle, not letting ADHD take over your life and shifting definitions of success. And managing stress doesn't mean ending stress because everything cannot matter the same. Also, if you're a fan of Brene Brown, you'll love to listen to Penny's voice. She sounds exactly like Brene, smarties. We think you'll love this episode. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 91 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are so excited to have Penny Williams joining us. Hi, Penny. Hey, ladies. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So before we kind of dig into the meat of what we wanted to chat about today, we wanted to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. And so why don't you tell us who you are, what you do and who you do it for, and a little bit about your journey. Yeah. So first and foremost, I'm a mom of a kid who has ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, executive functioning deficits, all that good stuff, kind of the alphabet soup. And he is completely the reason why I do what I do. I'm now a parent coach for families who have kids with ADHD or autism. I have some online training for parents. I do online summits each year, one for parenting ADHD, one for parenting autism, where we gather up a bunch of experts and have interviews for parents that are really insightful. And a lot of what I offer and what I create courses and content on is stuff that I wish I had known when my son was diagnosed. Like I wish so much that people had told me or that the information was readily available 11 years ago for a lot of the things that really were so powerful. And I wish I had implemented so much earlier or had even had them on my radar to research or anything. You know, it just, it wasn't in my sphere at all starting out because, you know, our understanding is better too yeah. after 11 years for sure. So there's a lot more out there than there was, but, you know, there really was a purposeful path to take with diagnosis and it wasn't out there and doctors were not sharing that with us. It was basically, this is what it is, read up on it. Here's a prescription if you want to use that. And so I started writing about ADHD and blogging and that turned into books and then the training. And we have the Happy Mama Retreat, which is an annual three-day retreat for moms of kids with neurobehavioral disorders or neurodevelopmental disorders just to come in a judgment-free zone where everybody understands your parenting and what you're going through and can really support. So 
that's kind of what I do. It's been a long journey and it's evolved over time for sure. But he's absolutely the whole reason that I got into this realm. And I just felt like if I was trying to figure all this out on my own and I finally had somewhat of a clear picture, why would I keep that to myself? Why would I not be helping other people who are looking for the same thing I was looking for? So I kind of started sequencing things and packaging things and writing books and trying to help other families because in the beginning it was so very hard so hard and so consuming and you're not alone no nope. and the first episode of our podcast is literally entitled you're not alone because that was where we wanted to start to have people understand that there's so many people experiencing some version and their story, while unique to them, is not unique as a whole. Right. And you have touched many people, I am sure, many parents. And I'm grateful that you told your story because it needed to be told. Thank you. Yeah, it really did. And I feel like we're so protective in the public sphere. And it's really funny because I have anxiety. I have quite a bit of anxiety and I, social anxiety has been kind of my biggest battle. So for me to do anything publicly is kind of crazy, but I just felt like the need was really there. It took a lot of baby steps. It took a long time before I started a podcast or did any videos with my face or my voice on them, you know, but when there's a need and we have the information, we just have to get it out there. You know, just like you know, you're doing the same thing. You're sharing what you know to help people. Yeah. You talked about needing labels and why you need it. And so many parents are anti-labels. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about why labels are important? Labels open the door. They open the door to a map or a guide of what we need to do, how we can help. So a lot of parents, they don't want to label their kids because they feel like they're putting them in a box or they're potentially telling people how to judge their child before they even meet and experience them, mm -hmm. which is a valid concern. These are all valid concerns. But the issue with keeping diagnoses like ADHD or autism or learning disabilities a secret is that then the other people in our kids' lives don't know how to help them. Mm -hmm. So when they see defiant behavior, they're going to label your child as defiant Yeah. instead of seeing that it's coming from ADHD and a different neurology. They're going to categorize your child more as some sort of character flaw or a quote, bad kid or a quote, lazy kid. Yes. And so I heard this from somebody recently and they really summed it up very succinctly is if we don't give those accurate labels, everyone else is going to label our kids and they're going to do it from a place of misinformation. So they are going to become that defiant, lazy student who doesn't live up to their capability, who isn't motivated, you know, all of those things that many of us have heard. Mm -hmm. So by seeking and accepting that label, we are helping to prevent some of that. We certainly can't prevent all of that. There are people still, including teachers and school administrators, who believe that ADHD isn't really a thing. Yeah. You know, we're always going to have some friction with some people around us, but having that label then gives us a definition and tells us which path to take forward. 
which direction we're even going. And it's not a clear path or a clear experience or journey by any means, but it's that direction that then guides us to things that are helpful. In terms of an autism diagnosis, having the label, the diagnosis can open the door for some therapies via insurance Mm -hmm. and help, you know, in public nonprofits and community outreach that you wouldn't have without the diagnosis. But really, I think it helps people understand our child. If we boil it all down, that's really what it is. It helps people understand who our child is, why they do the things they do, and why they might have particular struggles. Yeah. And thank you for saying that because we definitely feel the same way. And I know, Rach, we've talked about this, but we feel very strongly in our practices that we only work with families that are honest about the diagnosis with their children. Disclosing. And that not disclosing does a real disservice to the children. Yes. We don't like it when families are testing the teacher. Yeah. I'm going to wait and see how my kid does. And then I'll tell the teacher because I want to see what they have to say. Same with like they're testing out new medication and the teacher becomes the guinea pig for whether or not the medication works. We're not just talking about disclosing with the adult team that's working with the kid. The kid has to know why they're coming to educational therapy, why they might do things differently in the classroom based off their accommodations, what the accommodations are. If we don't talk to our kids about why they're doing things the way that they're doing it and what's happening, there's so much shame and embarrassment. Yes, And that's not the place from which we want to help kids. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the other big piece about it is that if we are keeping our child's diagnosis We are teaching them to be shameful of who they are, not even to be shameful of their diagnosis, but to be shameful of who they are. Because when we're talking about ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, this is their physiology. It is their neurology that cannot be changed. So we're teaching them to be ashamed of who they are, which is the worst message in the world to give kids. It really is. Yeah. It's hard enough that just adding that layer of shame and embarrassment and trying to cover and trying to compensate, the deficit is too great. And it's just going to get bigger as they get older. Yeah. And they internalize that. They start to think that it's them. Even with that diagnosis and that label, if we are telling them to keep it secret, they will start thinking that it's because something is wrong with them. Yeah. And a lot of times when they do come to educational therapy, I've had parents in the past, I'm sure you have too, Rach, that, well, we don't want to have any accommodations in school because we don't want them to think that they're different. And a lot of times my very first sentence is, they already know. Painfully. Yeah. Yes. And usually when we're talking about not acknowledging the differences, it's a lot of parenting ego being wrapped up in that. They don't want their kid to be different. Which makes sense and I'm compassionate about, but like Steph said, they know. And not honoring that and acknowledging that, that's the detrimental piece. There's a process for parents. I think every parent kind of starts there when you get a diagnosis. Even if you knew what was going on or you suspected it, it is still shocking because it's kind of this line in the sand in the history of your parenting and your child that says some of the things you envisioned 
aren't going to happen. Some of the things that should be easy that you thought were just childhood, like going to school, which we struggle with, may be a struggle, you know, that your child is going to have a little bit more of a difficult path, or at least potentially, it's hard. It's emotionally hard. And so there's a process of accepting the diagnosis, of really genuinely accepting it, stopping fighting it. You're not pushing back against it anymore. You're not looking for ways to undo symptoms, the symptomology, like lack of focus, hyperactivity, you know, because kids have the brain that they have and differences should be celebrated. Neurodiversity is a good thing. Our culture says that we should all conform, but, you know, things are changing. There's more and more neurodiversity every day. And so we have to get to a place where we embrace it. But for parents, it really takes some deep emotional work and a mindset shift because you can't rely on that normal parenting model anymore. You can't go forward with what I call the crime and punishment parenting because it's just not effective for our kids and it really sends the wrong message to our kids. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by crime and punishment parenting? Yeah, you know, it's very similar to the prison system in a way, you know, there's rules. If you break them, it's a crime. And if there's a crime, we punish you. And that is kind of our typical societal parenting model in the United States, that we are the authority as the parent, our kids are to obey us entirely and respect us. And anything outside of that should be punished because it doesn't fit the mold of this pretty little package of parenting that we are told is supposed to work out, right? And so punishment doesn't then address the reason for behavior, the reason that a rule is broken. And so it's going to continue to happen, especially for kids who are impulsive, because they don't take the time to stop and think. And that is what punishment is designed for. It's designed to make it so painful when you did that thing that next time you're thinking about doing that thing, you're going to stop yourself. And when you have a super impulsive, clinically impulsive brain, that doesn't work so well. And it takes a lot of practice and maturity for our kids to get to a place where they can think things through before acting sometimes. And so that model just doesn't work for our kids, but I don't like it for any kid because I really feel like we need to be raising individuals. It's not about conformity. We're all different and we all bring something unique to the table and we need that. We don't need you know, for everybody to be the same, for everybody to be conforming. All little soldiers. Yeah, we need to raise kids who problem solve, who think for themselves, who use their creativity. And right now, our public education system doesn't celebrate any of that. They, no. they are punishing that still. And as parents, I just see, and this is my experience over more than a decade, is that when we look at the why behind when something happened, a behavior that's unwanted, inappropriate, breaking the rules. When we look at why it happened and address that why, it's so much more effective because we're now giving them a tool or a strategy or helping them build a skill that then helps to prevent that 
unwanted behavior. And it just creates such a different family culture than I told you to do this, go do it now or else. Collaboratively working with our kids, which I learned from Ross Green of The Explosive Child. Mm -hmm. It's just so much better of a family dynamic. And the relationship with our kids is completely different and so much more rewarding. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we say about educational therapy is so often after families have been in our practices, parents come back to us and say that home life has improved dramatically because the parents are taken out of the equation of looking at the portals and checking the homework and dealing with the grades because that's where a lot of the fighting happens at home. So when that is taken out of the equation, there's a lot more of a healthy relationship, I think. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of parents who have kids with ADHD or other learning challenges that will hire a tutor just to do homework with their child. Yep. Like just to not have to engage in that battle of doing homework um, is immense for your family life, your parent-child relationship, just the tone in your house from day to day, you know, because there's sort of PTSD that comes with some of this stuff. And I've certainly experienced that from my son's school refusal, which we can talk about in more detail if you guys want to, but just, you know, that dread every day it's reaching homework time, it's reaching dinner time, whenever it is for your family. And you start to get stressed out and anxious and you don't want to do it. And you're worried that it's going to go bad. And it probably is if that's the history of Mm -hmm. the way it's gone for you. And, And then that kind of feeds that monster because now I'm coming to the party with a whole lot of stress and anxiety and my kid is going to absorb it he's going to try to deflect it. You know, it's just going to cause that friction that's going to keep building and building until somebody explodes. Yeah, somebody does explode. (laughs) (laughs) Many times. Oh, man. We make the same recommendation as well. Oftentimes, particularly in my practice, students are seeing us twice a week. And so a lot of the feedback that we get is that at least we know those two days out of the week, it's going to be a more peaceful home life after session. And when it's really dramatic and traumatic for the families on the days that they don't have education. I mean, I've had parents ask if their kid can come every day, which is not how educational therapy is designed. But for that piece of like, it mitigates the stressors Mm -hmm. of after school for the family. And we don't do that, but we do say, go ahead and hire somebody, outsource the problem. Yeah. Outsource that period. If you can, if that's a luxury that your family can afford, Go ahead and outsource that problem because at the end of the day, your kid is only home for 18, 19 years. And what do you want those years to look like? We talk a lot about that. And I think our kids get the feeling that we're not in their corner because we're saying, no, you have to do this and you have to do it in the way that we've been told that you have to do it. And that feels like we don't understand them and we're not honoring who they are and the ways in which they can show what they're learning, the ways in which they can succeed at the output piece of it. And so it really starts to build for them and feel like, you know, mom or dad just doesn't understand how hard this is for me. I remember one day my son came home from school. I think a teacher had emailed me and said that they needed him to work harder at school. 
And I had just brought it up to him and said, you know, so-and-so teacher is saying that they really need to see you working harder. And immediately it was tears and blubbering, just ugly cry and saying, nobody understands how hard I'm trying. I am trying as hard as I can. And, you know, for us, for my own son, being misunderstood is by far the biggest struggle, which is crazy because he has all these diagnoses. He has a different brain, but it's the misunderstanding of his parents, his teachers, his coaches, his friends, anybody in his life that creates such heartache and hardship for him. And so the more work we can do with educational therapists like you guys and with Mm -hmm. therapy and different things addressing those diagnoses, the better off we'll be. You know, a big piece of my work with parents is I need you to understand your child on a level that you didn't even imagine was possible or existed. And what I mean by that is looking at, okay, if your child, for instance, is sits down to do math and two seconds in, he's wadding up the paper and throwing it in the trash can. Well, you can get really angry about that, mm-hmm. but what is that going to do? Yep. It's going to get him more angry and we're not going to get anything done. Or I can step back and say, why is this happening? What is it about my kid that is making this hard for him, that he is putting up a wall between himself and that math worksheet? And that could be a variety of different things. But then knowing what that thing is, is showing my child that I understand who he is and where he is right now, what he needs, and working to resolve the issue so it's not going to come up again. If I take away his electronics for the day because he did that, what happens tomorrow when he has a math worksheet? I haven't taught him or helped him or accommodated him to be able to be successful with that. All I did was make it more painful for him, right? The cycle continues. Yes. Yes. Asking why breaks the cycle. Yeah, it really does. And that's one of the things as educational therapists, when the math worksheet is put in front of them and they are asked to do multi-step problems and they don't know where to start or how to start, or they don't know their math facts and they don't have access to some of these resources or even know what the problem is trying to do, or it's a bunch of words for a word problem and they don't understand why it's important. Mm -hmm. Asking the why and talking about the why and giving them that support and help makes such a difference. Yes. And you don't need to do the whole page. Mm -hmm. Rachel and I are very big about that. That's okay. Yes. And for a long time, we had reduced assignments. Mm -hmm. And I recommend that to parents all the time to ask for reduced assignments. If your child is in second grade and they are doing homework for two hours while their peers and the expectation was 20 minutes. Not developmentally appropriate. Yeah. You're punishing your child for having a disability. You're punishing them for being born the way they were born not okay. And it gets me crazy, as you can tell. But (laughs) fair is not equal. No, we're with you. Fair is not equal. And that's such a big assumption in education that everybody has to do the same. You know, why should Johnny have to do 30 problems and Sally only has to do five? How is that fair? Well, it's fair because it's the same amount of work. And Sally is proving that she knows the material in five problems. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's probably taking Sally just as long, 
as Johnny. Yes. One of the things we often say, going back to the conversation you were having when your son was breaking down, telling you how much he was trying, is we always say that kids who have some sort of academic interference, whether it's an ADHD diagnosis or a learning diagnosis or an autism diagnosis, whatever the diagnosis is, these kids are working twice as hard producing half as much and nobody's honoring it. Yes. So it was amazing that your son was able to, I'm trying. He was telling you, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying mm-hmm. here. And what happens when our kids continuously, continuously receive the message that how hard they're working isn't enough is they disconnect. They quit trying. I would too. And we totally have experienced that. Unfortunately, all the advocacy in the world that I've done over the years it has fallen on deaf ears a lot. Hmm. And because he's so intelligent, if you talk with him in a conversation, you think, wow, this kid is capable of big things. And, you know, so many people think that, especially in education, that capability is defined by intelligence. And that's only one tiny piece of the puzzle. Mm. And so being so misunderstood in that way, then they think they're lazy, they're not motivated, you know, and over the years of just constantly being told to try harder, do more, do better. At one point, he said, okay, I've done all those things and you're still telling me to do them. So forget it. I'm done. You know, yeah. wipe my hands of it. Mm-hmm. I'm out. The burden of potential is so huge. And when you're never going to reach whomever's definition, quote unquote, of potential is, yeah, they give up. And Rachel and I always talk about how in educational therapy, it's so important to foster the love of learning Mm -hmm. because when you lose that, it's so hard to get it back and you have to learn your entire life. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't want to do it anymore because it's been pounded into you the way it has been, it's a hard way to have to set out adulting. Yes. And a big portion of what I teach parents is you have to redefine what success is for your child. You know, for us, success in school isn't necessarily A's and B's. Success in school is learning the material, actually going to school when you're supposed to. You know, we've had to redefine what is success and in a way that was completely different than how I was raised. So again, it's one of those processes for parents where you have to accept that our cultural definition of success isn't right for your child and redefine it. You know, we have to redefine our parenting, what success is, what, you know, adulthood looks like. All of these things can be different and they should be. They should be individualized just as I think education should for every kid. But that's not where we are right now. Yeah. And one of the things that you said in your book that I think is really powerful is not giving ADHD the power over your lives. Yes. And that was such a process. When I started out, I got really obsessed. I was so obsessed that when I would take my son into his therapy appointments, she put me on self-help restriction because I came in with an (laughs) armload of books. Mm -hmm. I came in every time saying, this person told me this, I read this. And she could see the damage that I was doing to myself and even the whole family, but I couldn't yet. I think I lasted a week, maybe not a month. Mm -hmm. She told me nothing for a month. I'm like, you're crazy. (laughs) You know, I'm type A. It's just not who I am. But I was looking for a way to fix it. And there is no way to fix it. We're not going to change 
who our kids are at their core. They have different neurology. They have a different way of moving through the world. And when I finally realized that I had to find ways to help him succeed, I had to find ways to accommodate for different struggles. For instance, we like as a family going to fireworks on 4th of July. Well, you have a kid who can't stand loud noises. It's a real problem, but he enjoys the fireworks. He enjoys getting ice cream while we're waiting for them to start. You know, he enjoyed a lot about it, but just not the noise. And so we got noise-canceling headphones and music. Yep. And then he could enjoy it instead of just saying, no, he can't do that. Yeah. And so it's really about shifting our expectations, redefining them. Sometimes we have to move them back. You know, ADHD and autism are developmental delays. So in some ways, our kids are two to three years or more behind their peers. Social Mm -hmm. is a big one for us. Handwriting. My son's handwriting is like kindergarten at best and he's 17 because he has dysgraphia and that's just what we have to work with. So I couldn't fix that. I couldn't change his brain and the way his handwriting works, but I could advocate for tools and accommodations. And that's kind of what we're talking about, even in parenting, even at home, even in regular life. We're guiding our kids to live well with whatever challenges they have instead of trying to fix them. And once I quit trying to fix it and I was able to really shift in that way, our whole household just had this huge sigh of relief because I was making everybody crazy with my obsession. My husband would come in and try to run away from me after work every day, you know, because all I talked about was ADHD, the dinner tables, ADHD, everything. It was all consuming and it was so unhealthy. Mm. It was so unhealthy for all of us. And Mm -hmm. it was a real stressor too. And I'm a huge proponent of self-care for parents and stress is one of the biggies. I actually have a fibromyalgia diagnosis and it took five years to get it. Five years of hopping from doctor to doctor and test to test and everything would come out normal. And every one of them would say to me, well, you have to reduce your stress. And I thought, okay, well, am I supposed to give away my kids? And like, how do I, because I thought I had to end my source of stress in order to reduce my stress. But what it really was, was I had to figure out healthy ways to cope with the stress. I had to figure out ways to let some things go, like fixing it, Um, like having A's and B's on your report cards if you're smart. When you let go of these things, it is so freeing. And then that becomes this driving force of the entire dynamic in your family. There's a big difference between mom running around going, oh my gosh, this thing is so awful. We have to fix it. How can we fix it? And just being and giving childhood experiences in a way that works and doing the best we can with school and just really, it boils down to honoring our kids' truth, their individual personal truth, what's true for them. Honoring it, accepting it is everything. I just want to let that sit there for a second. Mm -hmm. Honoring it and accepting it is everything. Yeah. And how powerful. And I hope people listening to this podcast, parents, but also educators, teachers in the classroom, we're not taught about ADHD in school. Most people, you know, unless you have a master's in special education, are you learning about any of these things? Exactly. They don't put you out into the world equipped 
to know how to do this. So it's not entirely their fault. No, not at all. But until you have a student that is really putting things in perspective for you, that you start to really see how different things could be for all of your students in your classroom if you just change a little bit. So I hope educators are listening to that because I needed it. It's really easy for us as parents of kids who struggle at school to blame teachers. And I learned a long time ago that just as you said, teachers do not have the information. They are not required to learn anything whatsoever about special needs to become a teacher. So it's not from a place of refusal. Mm -hmm. It's from a place of, I don't understand. And when you take that approach as a parent with educators that this is my child's strengths, this is my child's weaknesses, this is what we have found helpful, what do you think about some of these things in your classroom? You know, again, collaborative. Everything in the world is better when we approach it collaboratively. People receptive to what you're saying. They are being educated in a way that they can be open to. It's really not the teachers. It's the fact that they didn't get any education on the particular struggles that our kids are having. And, you know, expecting that maybe medication is going to help fully. Medication is one tiny tool in the scheme of things with ADHD. It's just one little piece. It doesn't, you know, flip the switch that automatically makes a child focus and sit still. And I was just answering a parent on a forum this morning about how do I make my kid focus at school? He's already taking medicine. You know, we've tried this or that. How do I get him to focus? And my answer is always, you're asking the wrong question. How do you help him succeed at this task or look at why? Why is he not focused at this particular time? Is it because it's math? Is it because there's a window overlooking recess and he's seeing other kids playing? You know, there's so many things and we just have to keep focusing on the whys. And if educators can do that as well, I mean, you're taught as an educator conformity. Everybody goes in the same box, you know, right? And Mm -hmm. so I see a lot of promise in differentiated education My son had a young teacher when he was in first grade who was really big on that. That was exactly the way everything in her classroom was formatted. And he succeeded in that because she saw that each kid learned differently, that there are a lot of different ways to learn things and show what you learned. Is this the teacher that you're talking about? Is this Mrs. Marvelous? Yes. Okay. So in your book, which we should reference, you have several, but the book that we're talking about is Boy Without Instructions, and we'll link it in our show notes. Can you share a little bit about her, but also about what she did for him when he started the second grade? Let me dig that out of the recesses of my brain. That's a long time ago. The story was that she wrote him a letter. She wrote the letter, right? So cute. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to forget anything she did. And we're still in touch with her. We're friends on Facebook. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she marvels at, I mean, he's a man child. He's like six feet and 200 something pounds. And when (laughs) we met him, he was like this tiny little stick at 40 pounds, you know, in first grade, 45 pounds. So it's, it's amazing for her to be able to kind of follow that too. But yes, she just got it. Like she got that everybody is different and everybody learns differently. And so every lesson plan that she had, 
she was teaching it in more than one way. She was reaching kinesthetic learners. She was reaching visual. She was reaching auditory, you know, all of these different things she had mapped out to address in each lesson. One of my favorite things that she did, and this will tell you how long ago it was, it was a CD (laughs) in a little Mm -hmm. boombox, but she had this move into math CD. And in the morning at carpet time, that was the first thing they did. They got up and they started moving and the CD would do math and tell you different ways to move at the same time you were learning like one plus one is two, two plus two is four, you know, and, and it had music to it. It was just incorporating all of these great things to kind of wake up their brains and get them more focused on what they were there to do. She had a lanyard just for my son is when she started it. It had, I guess, about five or six little picture instructions. So kind of like pecs for a lot of people, they would know what pecs is. Mm -hmm. So there would be a picture of a kid sitting still on the carpet or somebody with their hand raised or, and so she didn't have to call him out. She would just hold up these pictures And it would be the silent instruction to help get him back on track. She also had them for carpet time. She had bigger printouts that were laminated on like popsicle sticks. And when the kids were wanting to be part of the conversation, which was great, it was exactly what was wanted, but they were kind of talking all over each other. You know, she would just hold up this picture of one of the students in her current class sitting still and raising their hand. And instantly when that picture went up, they all closed their lips and raised their hands. And it was just such a kind way to redirect. And, you know, the student of the month, she would have their picture on the bulletin board and it would always be doing one of these things, standing in line really politely with your hands to yourself or raising your hand or whatever it would be. And she gave him an award for most improved or something. I think she's the only teacher in his life that has given him an award during those end of year award things. She just really saw him. And so this was also the time in which we got the ADHD diagnosis. We trialed medication. Like things were really off the rails when he was in her Mm -hmm. class too. And so it was even more of a challenge, I think, at that period of time in his life. But when we went to meet the teacher the day before school started for second grade, I asked him if he wanted to go see her and say hi, which of course he did because he loves her, adores her. And she had this little letter in an envelope already ready for whenever he came to see her. She was tied up with another family. So the assistant teacher gave it to us. And I don't think we opened it right then. I think we waited until we got in the car and I was reading it out loud to him. And I just sobbed because somebody got it. Somebody saw him and saw how much he was struggling. And it was just the most wonderful letter about his strengths and what she liked about him and how excited she was for him to be going to second grade. And she couldn't wait to see, you know, the great things that he was going to do. And it was short and sweet, you know, for a first, second grader, but it was just the biggest boost to his self-esteem and confidence. It was powerful. Oh my gosh. I mean, I read it over and over for days and just cried and cried. Like every time I thought about it, I would tear up again because it was so powerful and it was so outside of expectation. You know, there aren't a lot of teachers that do that. 
And I understand time constraints and the stress and not having help. And, you know, there's so many reasons why teachers struggle to accommodate our learners who learn differently because there's so much asked of them and they're one person. And I totally get that. And in his school career and my daughter's, we've had one other teacher who did that. My daughter had a middle school teacher who wrote a letter to every kid in the class at the end of the year, every kid in his, I think he was an English teacher, about their strengths and just this little motivational letter for all he probably had at least 100 kids because they were changing classes. It was middle school. Mm. Amazing, you know, and it, and she, he was her favorite teacher because of things like that. Like he just really, he showed them that he saw them. And that was so amazing. It's a game changer. Completely, completely. We talk about it all the time, how powerful teachers are Mm -hmm. in the stories that little kids tell themselves. Or bigger kids tell themselves Mm -hmm. because they're reflecting back either the positives or the negatives in everything that they're doing from the teacher to the child. So I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. That one really touched my heart as a former classroom teacher. She's an amazing human being, not just in the classroom, but yeah. And I love that she's still in touch with your family because I know that when I'm connected with former families through Facebook or social media or whatever... I love getting to see them growing up, Yeah, you know, because they become your child for the nine months. I mean, you love these kids with your whole heart when you're a classroom teacher mm-hmm. and then they go off and then they leave the school or you leave the school or whatever. So it's a real luxury that we can be afforded that through social media. So I love, mm-hmm. I'm sure she appreciates that too. Yeah. Social media is not all bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> So knowing what you know now, if you could go back and talk to yourself in the early years of raising your son and your daughter, what would you tell yourself? Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Stop being so keyed up and stressed out over every little thing. I've been on this journey for 11 years. And just in the last about three years, have I really gotten my mind right? And I've really figured out how to manage the impact of stress, how to have a positive, optimistic attitude. And it took a lot of work. But when I got to the place with that of being able to let go of some of the minutiae, it was life-changing. Mm. And for everybody around me, again, my mood, my demeanor, my attitude affects everyone in my house, affects everyone at work. You know, we talk all the time about the negative Nellie and how we don't want to spend a lot of time communicating with negative Nellie because she brings us down, right? Yeah. Well, if you're that parent, think about what you're doing in your household, you know, and I was very much the psychological victim. And I finally just started Googling, like, why are some people happy? What makes us happy? Like, I thought that everybody else had some characteristic that I was just born without or something. And they had circumstances in their life that made it easier to be happy or whatever. I just thought there had to be something I was missing. And what I was really missing was that I could shift my attitude to be a psychological survivor And it would change the game completely. If I just change my thinking Mm -hmm. and my attitude about things, everything could be better 
and easier. And it was, it was really magical. And when I got to that place of really being able to let go of stuff and say, okay, I'm not the perfect mom. My kid is not the straight A, you know, sports scholarship, super uber successful, motivated kid. So what? You know, when you learn to say, so what? Yeah. Things change in a good way. You know, I'm not saying, oh, I forgot to make dinner. Oh, well, you know, it has to be the right things. But there's so much little things that we get so hung up on. And if we just let go of them, it's life changing, truly. And I was one of those people who just thought, oh, you know, what you think becomes your reality is just hippy dippy nonsense. It's really not. Like I have lived it mm -hmm. and it is not. There's so much value and power to that. Yeah. Having a growth mindset can change everything. Mm -hmm. Teaching the kids that is important too. Yes. Teaching them how to manage their emotions about things and what to prioritize that matters and what doesn't matter as much, you know. Everything can't matter the same. It just can't. But if we try to enforce that, if we try to make every little thing just as monumentally important, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed. Then the stress starts to lead to physical ailments mm -hmm. and mental and emotional ailments. And this is a hard parenthood. And when you learn to control your responses instead of reacting to our kids, but in general, with everything, it's big. You learn what you can control and what you can't control. Let go of the things that you cannot control. Penny, what are some of the best ways for people to connect with you? The easiest thing is just to go to my website because everything is linked up there, which is parentingadhdandautism.com. You can find the training, the books, the podcast, the blog, the retreats, the coaching, coaching. So many things. <laughs> all, yeah, the things. All, all the things. All the things. <laughs> all the things. I've already made a note to add that to our show notes. So if you're interested in learning more about Penny and what she offers and her books and her trainings and her coaching, go to her website, which we've linked in the show notes. Penny, thank you so much for coming on and joining us on the Learn Smarter podcast today. Thank you. I have so enjoyed it. Thank you. We're so happy to have had you.